1: This is where we live. I'm John Dankowski. Since President Obama started talks with the Cuban government to begin to normalize relations, there's been a flood of new educational, tourism, and goodwill trips from the U.S. to the island. Many Americans are getting to see, for the first time, a country that's been walled off from the global economy and also from the U.S., which is only 90 miles away. Today, where we live, the state of Cuban American relations. After President Obama's most recent visit, we'll talk to some Connecticut residents who just returned from the island. Later in the program, we'll hear about the impact of baseball diplomacy, not only at the major league level, but among youth baseball players from Cuba and West Hartford, Connecticut. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org wherewe live. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. Joining us in studio is Megan Torrey. She is Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Megan, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, John. Also with us is Odette Casamayor Cisneros. She is Associate Professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino Literatures and Cultures at the University of Connecticut, and she joins us in studio as well today. Odette, welcome to the program.
2: Thank you very much for having
1: me. We're going to be talking with with Megan and other people who've returned recently from the island, but I want to get your perspective first, Odette. Uh, President Obama's recent visit to Cuba... In a broad sense, what does it mean for Cuban-American relations?
2: I would say this is a great moment. It's something that uh, we were hoping, top, some of half were hoping to happen. Um, and um, it's the only thing I would say about, well, the first thing I would say about this uh, uh, new engagements between um, Cuba and the United States is not to consider Cuba as an island frozen in time. So it's a very complex uh, place and I have the feeling that sometimes some people are saying well just the United States is jumping over Cuba and uh, maybe some there are some intents of doing that but it's not as easy as we will say it, was, it has been an island that uh, it has kept uh, unknown for the Cuba for the for the United States uh, general uh, public uh, for half a more than half a century. And uh, it has changed. So even though when we go to Cuba, well, well tourists or visitors arrive in Cuba, they have the sense that anything has changed. So you have the all, uh, of course, the all um, cars, American cars, and the all uh, article houses and, uh, and the colonial architecture. Um, everything is in a certain way, different as any other places that we had already, um, that we are uh, used to, to to visit. And uh, what is um, um, another important thing concerning um, this uh, current events between Cuba and the United States is that even though we can have the uh, impression that um, anything is changing in Cuba because the government is not making... A re- radical changes in the especially in the political um arena uh, Well, we have actually uh, uh, this uh, weekend this weekend the, the um communist communist the congress of the communist party started and uh, uh, president raul Castro made clear that there wouldn't be uh, substantial changes uh, in the um government ideology. And uh but the fact is that even though we can imagine that anything is changing, I will say that especially the visit of President Obama is encouraging Cuban people to provoke those changes.
1: So, so maybe you could tell us, walk us through a few of the changes that we might not know about, the things that have developed on, on the island of Cuba over time that maybe we wouldn't see if we showed up there. You mentioned American tourists and visitors go and they see the old cars, they see the old architecture, they see in many ways a system that they see as stuck in time. But you've mentioned all sorts of changes in ways in which Cuba is different. What are some of those changes? What are some ways in which Cuba is changing right now?
2: Well, when I say it's, um, it's a um, complex uh, society and uh, something that probably we cannot measure when we arrive for the first time uh, or we stay only for one week or um, for several days, is that um, the complexity is, well, it's a Latin American country, of course, but at the same time it has been, you have at least two or three generations of Cubans that had been raised within a socialist system. And uh, the ways in which, so the combination of both <laughs> being a Latin American country, a Caribbean country, an isolated country, the sense of isolation too, and uh, at the same time of being raised under a socialist system creates a very specific uh, kind of uh, of population, and you have to deal with that. So sometimes people say we used to think that those are just those socialist uh, people, or, or, and try to compare us with uh, uh, um, I don't know people from the uh, uh, former Soviet Union or other communist, um, uh, former communist countries. But it's not exactly that. And uh, sometimes also they are surprised that Cuban people have a, a, a very long relationship and know a lot about uh, American culture, which is also true, but to what extent? So all of that is difficult to understand. But concerning your specific questions, the current changes, uh, I will say that the most important uh, ar- um, um, arose when uh, president, current president Raul Castro um, took the power in 2006, and uh, he implemented a series of uh, economic uh, measures that allowed Cubans to invest and to have so and um, s- slow sorry slowly encourages the encourage the uh, small entrepreneurship but we had also to understand that it's not totally open <laughs> so ultimately all the resources are still in the hands of the so in the hands of the state the communist state so the um uh,
1: regime. So it's it's different than it has been, but it's, it's not so different. Uh, and, and I think that's one of the things we'll get into on in today's program as we talk about the state of not just Cuba, but Cuban American relations today with Odette Casamayor Ciceneros from the University of Connecticut. You can join us at 860 275 7266. As I mentioned, Megan Torrey is with us as well from the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Megan, what, what took you to Cuba recently?
3: So I was lucky enough to lead a World Affairs Council trip. Um, So the World Affairs Council around the country runs trips every year, and they've been doing a trip to Cuba for for quite some time since uh, just after the special period. So I was chosen to be a leader of a trip that was going uh, 13 through 21 March this year. So, uh, you know, found out that we would have a little bit two days crossover with the president uh, just a few weeks before we left.
1: And and before we get to the actual impact of the president, very specifically on your trip, what were some of the things that you were you were looking for as you entered into this trip? Um, Much like what Odette was just explaining, our view of what Cuba is like is kind of behind this hazy wall. We're not entirely sure What Cuba is like or how Cubans might feel about Americans or how much connection there is to the rest of the the world or the global economy? What were the preconceptions perhaps you had going in, Megan? And what are some of the things that changed during that that visit?
3: Right. So very good question. Um, so this was a people to people diplomacy trip, uh, the purpose of which is to exchange and engage with the Cuban people. And I think as an American, you have sort of a, this romanticized view, uh, image of what Cuba is, these, you know, wonderful cars, this, this great island um, that has been isolated by, um, you know, the embargo and the political situation over the last 60 years. And uh, what you find Um, yes, is an island that's been isolated and the infrastructure has suffered all of those years of not having the resources. But you find a very uh, vibrant culture, uh, a culture that's very alive. Uh, When you do people-to-people diplomacy, you are encouraged to speak with a lot of artists. Uh, And Cuban artists and musicians are some of the best in the world, and they have a a passion that I think is um, definitely contagious. We had um, interesting uh, briefings by some urban planners and architects, and just the, the conception of how you can preserve Old Havana, um, that it is very much um, a living culture, but a living culture that has um, suffered uh, under some, you know, isolation over the last, uh, you know, 60 years or so.
1: Were, were there a few things during your trip that, that really totally changed in your mind, in which you thought, I thought this about Cuba, and as I come back, I think something entirely, entirely different?
3: So I think, um, as Odette said, it's a very complex situation uh, because you see this great architecture and then you see that it's, you know, crumbling. Right. Um, So I think as an American and having in having Cuba so close, it's just very conflicting. Um, I don't think I I came to any definitive sort of this is what I thought about Cuba and I'm going back. It's just all very conflicting and challenging um, because we're at a crossroads now where there is momentum and the potential for change. But in order to reach that change, there's so much that has to be done. Um, so it's, it's quite conflicting, complex and challenging.
1: And I think one one question that a lot of people have uh, following the president's visit is is who who benefits as these relationships um, open up, as more Americans and people from around the world come into Cuba, as more business interests are able to invest in Cuba? As you said, as more Cubans are able to be entrepreneurs on the island, these are all changes. But who do these changes benefit, and do they properly benefit the the people in in Cuba who who need help, who who literally need to live at a higher level than they are right now?
2: Well, this is an important question. And uh, first of all, we have to. The first thing is that we don't know who, what exactly is being is being <laughs> negotiated right now. And uh, um, everything depends on that, on how, in the case of Cuba, how uh, the government, uh, if really the government intends to protect the most impoverished and uh, disempowered part of the population. And um, probably, Megan, when you were there, you were able to, to see that there are sharp inequalities in the island. And uh, so far, I will say that not um, if, um, um, uh, important um, policies have been developed in order to protect the parts of the population. Uh, so it means that so far, um, given what has been um, uh, um, create that have had happened so far through the uh, those negotiations. It's only the a sector of those entrepreneurs who are having, who at least for the Cuban part, who are really um, having some uh, um, 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 taking some benefit from the uh, uh, current negotiations. And uh, most of this, uh, so it's somehow what I fear is that the cycle of inequalities might continue to develop and uh, even that it, those inequalities will get even worse if something is not.
1: What, what do you see as the impact of direct diplomatic efforts by the president of the United States on this? Can, can the United States, do you feel, Odette, change in any way what is happening in Cuba on the ground? Because we, we see in, in some ways our inability to do just that in places like China or Iran or other states that we've had long standing simmering tensions with um do you see the president's visit as changing something substantial here um substantially it depends how do you
2: consider substantially uh from the from from the government absolutely not but uh, at the same so and from the part of the people i would say yes and uh, i think that Pres- president obama I don't know, but I have the feeling that uh, he is aware. He was aware of that in his uh, speech. His visit was, and he repeatedly said so. His visit was uh, trying to. Um, was a visit for the Cuban people, not for the Cuban government. And the spe- through all, all his speeches, and especially the last speech, the most important, was per, uh, um, particularly dedica- dedicated to the Cuban people. He was talking to the Cuban people, and he was trying to uh, encourage within these people to do their own changes. And this is where I would say that, yes, it is, was important. Yes, it had an, an, a significant impact in, in, uh, for Cuban. But then you have on the other side the government. The government kept the same, somehow the same, at least in in their words, they keep the same um, position. But this is another, uh, I would say, uh, element from the complexity to add to the comple- Cuban complexity. We Cubans, so the Cubans that live in the island and are have been raised in the island and have left there at least for, let's say, 10 or 15 years um, they know that everything that the government says is not exactly what would be happened, so you have always to always to read between the lines and to wait what is actually happening in reality uh and on the other side what the government is say, is saying. Mm-hmm.
1: It's not. It's really complicated, as we were. Well, and before we take a break, Megan, you know, as somebody who studies uh, foreign policy and diplomacy, certainly, what do you see as the impact of President Obama's visit? Very clearly, this this powerful speech he gave was targeted at the Cuban people. There was also an audience back home, some receptive ears back home, and some ears that he knew would not be receptive in, in Congress. But what do you make of the impact of what President Obama did by going and said while he was there?
3: So, I think when we were on the ground in Cuba. Um, uh, just a few days before the the visit of the president, um, you know, talking to Cubans about what they what their hope is for um, what the president had to say, they were very much invested and encouraged that this is a new um, a new page. We're turning a new page. We're able to move. Um, and I think you always have to look at diplomacy, um, the opening of our embassy, the president's visit. The diplomacy is a tool. Um, in your toolbox to reach an end, to open up. I mean, uh, look, we never um, stopped talking to the Soviet Union um, during the Cold War and that this is a significant step towards using that tool of diplomacy to open up relations and to continue um, building a relationship.
1: We're talking today with Megan Torrey, who's Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of Connecticut, and Odette Casamayor Cisneros, who's an Associate Professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and Latino Cultures uh, and Literatures at the University of Connecticut. We'll take some of your phone calls as well at 860-275-7266 as we consider Cuban-American relations here on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. In America, it's still possible for somebody like me, a child who was raised by a single mom, a child of mixed race who did not have a lot of money, to pursue and achieve the highest office in the land. That's what's possible in America. That's President Obama speaking in Cuba. Today we're considering the President's visit and what it means for Cuban-American relations. We're going to be talking with people throughout the course of today's program who've been to the island recently, uh, as as part of a series of goodwill tours and educational opportunities. We'll even be talking about baseball diplomacy later on in the program. Um, the speech, though, from President Obama prompted our guest, Odette Casamayor Cisneros, to ask, would a black Cuban Ever become president on the island? I'm wondering if you can talk about that. You wrote a beautiful piece about this that we read in Huffington Post and about this very important racial component to the president's visit and what it means for the people on the island as well. What struck you about the president's visit and what he was able to say about that?
2: Well, the, um, what, what was uh, really, um, I would say, surprising for me is uh, that he. It wasn't surprising because I live here, <laughs> but if, if I, I I I suppose that I, some, sometimes I I wonder what would happen if I was there in the audience when he was uh, specifically addressing Cuban um, Afro Cubans and also by the way Cuban Americans and um, um, in, particularly in Miami. Um, in a Cuban, uh, in, in a Cuban theater, for in a public space, and uh, in an event that was broadcast in, um, nationally, uh, nationally uh, broadcasted. Why it is? Imp- it was important. Is because uh, in Cuba, Afro Cubans has not um, are not used to celebrate and to um, in, just to celebrate the agency of black people and not only a black man a president of the united states but a states by a family a black family and uh, this is something totally unusual for cubans and it wasn't only afro cubans but the whole population that all uh, well, like that were uh celebrating <laughs> this uh, this family and uh, so there is a, con- a problem of um, black agency and not even the black agency because even President Obama in his speech, he acknowledged the agency of Afro-Cubans. It is how in Cuba there is not a recognition of this black agency and how uh, when, of course, there has been a lot of uh, uh, um, Afro-Cubans are heroes and um, um, scientists and professors, scholars, etc. But when their achievements are recognized, it's only as Cubans and and not as part of an Afro-Cuban legacy.
1: It, and that's so interesting because, again, it's, it's much of the same story that President Obama was fighting a, against and for in America as he strove to become the first black president of America. And I think for those of us on the outside, viewing this racial component uh, of, of Cuba is something that probably we don't think about very much and is obviously very important to the story. Um, you have family still on the island, am I correct? Yes,
2: my mother lived there. H- how long,
1: how often do you go back? A lot. <laughs> you go back a lot.
2: Yes, at least once or twice a year.
1: What What is it like for you going back and forth to Cuba as as an American, as a Cuban American, now as an Afro Cuban? What what are, what are those visits like for you? What do, What do you feel when you return to the island?
3: It's
2: also complicated
1: <laughs> we hear this <laughs> because, word a
2: lot yes i'm so sorry i no, cannot it's give true. you simple <laughs> answers <laughs> but uh well it's complicated in the sense that i have been living half of my life i have spent half of my life out of cuba so it's not that hard right now i was living first for 10 years i was living in paris first and uh, at the beginning it was harder to go back to Cuba because i was starting uh, to uh, to um to be used to another to other reality in this case it was in paris and uh, I remember that at the beginning, when I was uh, traveling to Cuba, I used to—I had a switch in my mind. I try, I always put it off and on, <laughs> independence where I was going because it it is not uh, my exactly my reality anymore. It's not my society anymore. But at the same time, your body somehow is, uh, is being carried, but but uh, its memories and uh, right now going to cuba and especially in these moments in which uh, you feel that some transformations might happen um the real well i feel that i am somehow part of it but at the same time it's not it's not my given that it's not my reality it's the cuban people living in the island who i i hope and i believe that they have something to do with all of that what i try to do in my um, personal situation is to put all the uh, skills, um, knowledge that I have from my experiences uh, out of the island uh, and, and made them useful for them as possible. But at the same time, I always say to my friends and activists that I met in Cuba is that I I am there to help, that I am not there to tell them what to do because I don't know what to do in a situation that is not mine.
1: What, what, what do you make of the very large number of Cuban-Americans who live here now who who reject the notion that the president should go, who reject the notion that we should break down any sort of trade or other barriers with, with the island until or unless the Castro regime leaves power?
2: I will say the same thing that President Obama said in Cuba. We have to go beyond history. It's not that we have to forget um, history. History is there. We are made of that but we have to go further. <laughs> and uh, I believe, I respect a lot this uh, Cuban, um, I respect both parts and uh, uh, all the implied parts and the, and, the, and the problems because there is a lot of pain. And again, President Obama said it in his uh, in his speech, but uh, so he acknowledged that it's something that the Cuban government hadn't do because it's a really black and white uh, uh, position. So I admire them. I recognize their uh, their suffering, but at the same time, I first I will say, please think first of your children. What will happen with the future? What we can do with the future? Do we want to stay in the same way with the same pain all the time, or we want to produce something different?
1: Yeah, and Megan, I'd like to get your thoughts on that too, because obviously, as we talked about diplomacy and the effects, the impact that it can have on cultural exchange, on on economics, and on just Politics and people, it, you, you believe it to be very powerful, but there are many, many people who would say that the United States engaging with the Castro regime because of what it has done over the years is not where we should be. What do you say to that as someone who's who's you know, been on the side of, yes, diplomacy is something that we need?
3: So I think Odette said it the be, said it best is that really was um, Obama connecting to the Cuban people and not to the Castro regime. I think once the floodgates open, once you have uh, d- diplomacy in there and you have American tourists or, or, or American visitors going there, you know, 75 percent increase last year, 75 percent increase this year, the economics will follow. And once you have that American investment there, I don't think you can stop the train. Uh,
1: of course, uh, something you were saying to us during the break that's very important that you learn from some of the meetings that you have is yes we may have more flights to Cuba from America than we've had ever before we'll have more boats going and we'll have more hotels being built the question is can Cuba's infrastructure can the whole setup that we have right now actually sustain what they're hoping to get out of this tourism boom
3: right so I think um, what you'll see in Cuba now um, with so many visitors going as I just mentioned uh, since December um, 2014 the increase in American travel to Cuba has been 75% last year. That's, that's, uh, you know, on track to beat that this year. Uh, you have a tourist industry in Cuba that is stretched beyond its limits. Uh, any given day, all hotel rooms in Cuba, this is in the, on the entire island, 100 percent booked. Um, we ran into shortages of bottled water. We ran into shortages of coffee, of all things, in Cuba. Um, the, the infrastructure is very stretched. And how, as a country, you can respond to that, it's going to take some time to figure out.
1: And you actually have a, a personal experience with that because you had a, a crossover a time with President Obama's visit. Um, you actually were personally affected by what happens when the president brings his entourage.
3: Absolutely. So, as as the the entourage grew, um, to I think over twelve hundred people that went with the president to Cuba. About two days before we left, we found out that oh nope, you're you're can't stay in Havana. We're sending you out to Veradero, which is no one goes to Veradero, right? So <laughs> Americans aren't technically allowed to go there. Um, so we we did we were sort of kicked out of our hotel. Um, and I know that uh, part of it was by the Tampa Bay Rays. So
1: oh by by the yeah. Tampa Bay Rays of course Bay and this is because the the baseball team is coming to play this exhibition game which we'll be talking about in a little bit but that was a piece of it right you get a whole bunch of activity around this and now the Americans who are there on a, on a sort of a diplomatic mission aren't able to do what they're doing
3: Right. There wasn't, you know, not enough room. Um, we'll send you away. So, you know, it's a it's an, in, in, you know, an in industry. It's it, tourism is stretched very, very thin in Cuba.
1: Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking a bit more about this notion of baseball diplomacy. It's not just major leaguers, the Tampa Bay Rays, who are showing up to play an exhibition game against the Cuban national team. But it's also little leaguers from places like West Hartford and Vermont that show up and they spend time on the island learning. Uh, about cuba we'll be talking hopefully with bill the spaceman lee a great boston red sox pitcher who's been back and forth there a number of times we'll take some of your phone calls as well right now i'm going to turn you over to some of our friends who are going to tell you why you should support wnpr and all the programming that we bring you all the voices from around the world this is where we live 1-800-584-2788
4: is the number to call. Hi there, I'm Lydia Brown, and I'm here with my colleague, Betsy Kaplan, and we're in the last week of our spring fundraising campaign, which is why we're taking just a few minutes out of where we live to ask you to consider supporting WNPR. You know, because you listen to this station, we know you're a person who's curious about the world and interested in learning new things. I know I've certainly been learning a lot these past few minutes, listening to where we live, talk about Cuba and Cuban-American relations and Where else are you going to hear a conversation like that? I mean, the short answer is nowhere. Programs like Where We Live, The Colin McEnroe Show, The Faith Middleton Food Schmooze are completely unique to this station, to WNPR. You're not going to hear anything like them anywhere else. So if you're one of the many listeners who's come to love and rely on these shows over the years, consider giving us a call now and showing your support. 1-800-584-2788. That's 1-800-584-2788 or you can go online to wnpr.org thanks lydia
0: i agree um if you're if you're listening to where we live right now that means you love this show you love the fact that you can hear um topics that range from gardening to cuba and you hear it from lots of different perspectives. And in this climate, this political climate right now where you're hearing mostly yelling and screaming on other commercial radio stations and the television television stations as well, it's kind of a welcome change. So if you value that, please give us a call. I will say that thanks to a generous donation, a generous longtime donor and supporter of where we live. If we can raise $1,000 this hour by 10 o'clock, we'll get an additional $1,000 immediately to support where we live. So if you love where we live, they're going to get some extra money if you can help us out this morning. But we have to raise that $1,000 this hour to get that additional money. Um, Some people have been calling in, and we want to thank a few people. Margaret Smith called in. Uh, She said uh, she took the Mother's Day bouquet and left in capital letters. Please leave outside the garage door if no one is home. (laughs) Uh, We got a couple of renewing members calling in, uh, someone who just moved to Connecticut in September and is already hooked on WNPR. Uh, Pierre Barber called from Unionville, Connecticut to say, I love your programming. It's something I look forward to. Uh, Another donor uh, says she needs WNPR every day in her life. This sounds like people who love what we do. If you're one of those, please give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or if easier, please go online, WNPR.org.
4: Again, that's 1 800 584 2788. And of course, uh, we have lots of great ways to to say thank you when you give. Uh, For instance, you know, Mother's Day is just around the corner. And maybe you've been trying to figure out what to get for that special mom or mom figure in your life. Well, we've got the answer right here with our Mother's Day bouquet. It's a beautiful pink and green arrangement that comes with a square vase and chocolates. It can be yours for a gift of $10 a month or a one time gift of $120. it can be delivered anywhere in the United States, uh, in the lower 48 states, I should say, uh, by Friday, May 6. Again, that would be for $10 a month. Now, if you'd rather uh, that be delivered by Saturday, May 7, uh, all that takes is a monthly contribution of $11, just a dollar more each month, or a one-time gift of $132. So if that sounds like something uh, mom might like, give us a call 1-800-584-2788 or go online to wnpr.org. And just remember, Remember, you know, no amount is too small. The, the simple fact that you give shows us, you know, how much you appreciate WNPR and all of the great information it provides you. One eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight or wnpr. dot org.
0: I do want to emphasize that no donation is too small. I agree with Lydia. Mm. But you need to make that donation. Um, you've probably heard a lot of people on this station mention, while well, we're fundraising, say that only about 1 in 10 of our listeners actually give us money. That's really not enough. Um, the money that you give to us supports all the programming that you hear, including the locally produced shows that happen on this, uh, from this Hartford studio and New Haven studio. There's Faith Middleton Sh- Food Schmooze, Where We Live, which is what you're listening to now. And the Colin McEnroe Show, Uh, they aren't made for free. Um, It takes a lot of money to uh, bring you the local news that you hear in the afternoon by reporters who go in-depth in education, culture, business, uh, capital report. So those things uh, are valuable to you. They're valuable to us. Please give us a call. Uh, If you don't want the Mother's Day flowers, you can go online at wnpr.org. There's plenty of gifts there. Uh, We're giving away tickets to see Ira Glass at the Bushnell on November 12th. Uh, that's presented by our friends at the Mark Twain House. Again, 1-800-584-2788. one
4: 584 2788 Thank well, you. Yes, 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. Uh, show us your your support. Get on board. one eight hundred five eight four two seven eight eight, 584 2788 And thank you.
1: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, we'll look back at the six pillars of Hartford. Remember those? They were revitalization projects back in the 1990s, things like housing, parking, the big sports megaplex. Some of these have been completed. Some of them, of course, haven't. What does this do for the city, and where's it left the city after all these years? We're going to take a look back at the six pillars of Hartford find out where we are right now. That's coming up on Tomorrow's Where We Live. Today, we're talking about President Obama's recent trip to Cuba, and we're talking to Connecticut residents who recently returned from the country, including a group of baseball diplomats from West Hartford. Uh, I want to remind you that our guests in studio are Megan Torrey from the World Affairs Council of Connecticut and Odette Casamayor Cisneros, who is from the University of Connecticut. Joining us now by phone are Jack and Tim Brennan. Jack is a Sedgwick Middle School eighth grader. He's a baseball diplomat, and he's a shortstop and a pitcher. Jack, welcome to where we live.
5: Thank
1: you. Uh, also with us is Tim Brennan. That's Jack's dad. He runs Teen Cultures Connect, uh, who was also part of this Cuba trip, helped to put this thing together. Tim, thanks so much for being here.
6: Good morning. Thanks for having us.
1: Hey, Tim, first of all, t- tell us, where was the, the genesis for this idea? Where did this come from?
6: The, the idea actually came from Bill Spaceman Leah, Hall of Famer for the Boston Red Sox, who told us about this program that had been running out of, out of Canada. And I said, this is amazing. We need to do this out of the U.S. and be the first USA Cuba Goodwill program.
1: Uh, Bill Lee is also with us on the line as well. The Spaceman, of course, a longtime pitcher for the Red Sox and the Montreal Expos. He went to Cuba uh, as part of this project. You can also see more about his Cuba visits as part of Spaceman, a baseball odyssey. Bill Lee, welcome to the show.
7: Well, good morning, boys. You're all recovered, and you sound very enthusiastic. This is good.
1: Uh, Bill, tell us about what your connection has been uh, to Cuba over the years and why you think it's important to bring young baseball players like like Jack Brennan uh, to the island.
7: I played with Louis Tion for 10 years, and he's from Havana, and uh, we were best friends. Uh, We were both married to a woman named Maria, and we both had two boys and a girl in the exact same year. (laughs) We're joined at the hip forever you know, and uh, they're great people, and I got to go down in 99, I've been down 14 times, you know, the only problem I've had is getting back into the United States, and I was stuck for 15 minutes because the border guard yesterday afternoon was a Yankee fan.
1: <laughs> which, which, that that's something that's going to be a problem for you and maybe not for some others, Bill. Yeah, uh,
7: you just—you can always tell a Yankee fan, you just can't tell him much.
1: <laughs> hey, I want to turn to Jack Brennan, who, who's here. So, so Jack, you got a chance to go with, with this famous baseball player and all your friends and, and your dad down to Cuba. W- what were you thinking about as you were going there, and what did you learn while you were there?
5: Well, uh. We learn that uh we don't we have a lot more than uh they have, and we're just very lucky and we take a lot of things for granted that they don't really get down there
1: mm. do do you think there's something specific uh Jack, about baseball that helps to bring people together so that they can talk across cultures maybe when you know you don't have anything else in common, at least you have baseball in common
5: yeah, I think baseball is a common language between u s a and Cuba and it helps us bring us together uh, as two countries and unite us.
1: Hey, Tim, tell us about the the actual uh, games and stuff. I mean, did you play games against Cuban players? How did that all go?
6: Listen, uh, (laughs) it went really well, other than the fact that we were 0-3 in Takahoe, as Bill Lee pointed out. Um, (laughs) But uh, baseball was secondary for us. The the, the main point, as you said, was to connect uh, the kids, and they – even though they didn't all speak the same language, they spoke baseball, Uh, we we had them actually at our hotel. They ate together, swam together, played wiffle ball together, um, and they are now connected, and we're bringing them back here uh, to Connecticut this July. So we're going to complete that connection, if you will, like a circuit.
1: Bill, maybe you can tell us a bit more about your experience over the years. With you know, you you say Louis Tiant, uh, the great former Red Sox pitcher, was your best friend. It's one of the reasons why you had a connection to to Cuba. We've heard the stories of everyone from Louis Tiant all the way to Yasil Puig today, who've been able to make this this trip. Do you think that baseball has a special place in connecting these two cultures?
7: Most definitely, it's a timeless game, and it connects us in a way that goes on forever and they have very few tractors. They have oxen down the sides of the street. There is no noise. There's no weed whackers. They do everything by hand. They're all craftsmen. They're all multi dimensional. They're what I call uh, they're generalists. They're not specialists. They all have to do everything. They all pull together. They're all educated. They all speak English to an extent and they are all, their medical is free. We had one of our boys, Crabby, go down, and they took care of him perfectly, got him back, rehydrated him, got him back on the field, and he was our top pitcher. He retired nine straight batters in a row, you know, and I think we would have won that game if we had had him healthy sooner. But it, the, these boys, they were so – our American boys were so great in that they appreciated and were with open eyes and saw that it's better to give than to receive. It's better to open your hand than to close your hand. And I believe that's the message that we brought, and that's the message we're going to bring back. And all these uh, you know, these soothsayers and people that are, are, are from Miami and everything else, these were the upper 1% that left after the revolution because they were batista And if you can read the, the, the story of, B- of Batista, Fugio Batista and the mobs and, and all the people down there, just watch, uh, you know, Godfather 1 and 2, and uh, you will know who the right guys are.
1: Uh, Bill, before I let you go, I just have to ask you, you say you, you've gone 14 times. What have you seen change over the years? Have you seen an enormous amount of change since you first made your, your first visit to Havana?
7: Not a thing. Very little. They'd paved an extra lane in Holkein. That's all I noticed. <laughs> I think that was for the Pope.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. Bill, the spaceman, Lee, former Major League Baseball pitcher, he put together this, uh, this idea of taking young baseball players to Cuba. He's been there a number of times. You can see more about his voyage as a spaceman, a baseball odyssey. Bill, so great to talk to you. Thanks for being here on Where We Live. I really appreciate it.
7: Thank you. Thank you, Tim and Jack. I know you loved it, and I will see you soon and uh, bring those Cubans down. And uh, I still want to open that pizza parlor halfway between whole Kid and our hotel because we need good Connecticut, New Haven pizza somewhere on the earth.
1: Bye. So, so after, after baseball diplomacy, uh, pizza diplomacy, thank you so much, Bill. And, and Tim, you say that there's, the next voyage is actually something that brings the two places uh, together once again, but actually up here in Connecticut.
6: Why? Uh, it's going to be great. We we have uh, a group of 20 coming down, including uh, 12 baseball players and coaches. We're going to have them here uh, in the Greater Hartford area. We're talking to the Yard Goats about playing there. Uh, you know, Bill Lee will be here. Louis Tian is invited. Um, just wait. We do need some help, though. We're fundraising for every bit of it. We're paying for their passports, visas, flights, food, transportation, everything. Um, so. So stay in touch, uh, watch the media, watch our Facebook. Uh, Everyone can be a part of this.
1: Uh, Tim Brennan from Teen Cultures Connecting. And Jack Brennan, are you looking forward to continuing this baseball diplomacy?
5: Yeah, it's going to be really fun with the Cuban players and kids and just uh, making friends with them and making uh, connections.
1: Uh, Tim and Jack, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank Thank you. Um, today on Where We Live, we're talking about Cuba and U.S. connections. Odette Casamoyor Cisneros is an associate professor of Latin American, Caribbean and Latino cultures and literatures at the University of Connecticut. What do you make of this baseball diplomacy here? It's it's one of those things that has been happening over the years in which, um, you know, sports can sometimes bring people together in a way that other things can't. We were talking off the air about how music is another one of those things. Talk about these connections made by programs like this. What what, what as a Cuban American? What what do you what do you think of this?
2: I think I I welcome all those initiatives um even in in culture or in the sports well in this case is baseball my son unfortunately what he plays is soccer so there's no I cannot say a lot about that but um in, I think it's a good way it's, um, a, it's um, a smart way to develop those relationships because at um the um the um, participants in, in this uh, baseball game from the uh, West for in Cuba, in, yes, in Cuba, um, they have said, well, it's a way in which the, is the real people-to-people a change? They are, And especially between kids, because they are able, to, we, uh, as I was saying before, we have to think of, of the future. Those are our kids here in the States or in Cuba, and they are, they are having this experience that was impossible to think about for me, for instance, when I was in Cuba, how to play or to have any um, 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 uh, direct exchange with uh, Americans. And for
1: them, it's a reality. Well, And that, that direct exchange, and that's really, uh, Megan, what, what your visit is about and what so many of these visits are about. You talked about the people-to-people diplomacy. Is that what That is what really makes the difference, the idea of going someplace, talking to people who live different lives than you, uh, maybe learning a little bit something about the culture and probably learning quite a bit about your own as well. I think uh, Jack Brennan, a young uh, pitcher in, in shortstop, said, you know, look, they don't have what we have. I, I think it's fair to say that for an awful lot of kids growing up in West Hartford, Connecticut, they don't have a gr- a great depth of experience on how people unlike them live, and I think getting to go to Cuba probably gives them a, a pretty good idea about that.
3: I think it's an eye-opening experience. I think um, it exposes uh, our common humanity and how we can all move together um, as as part of as global citizens. And I think uh, for these young people in West Hartford, it is in uh, a life-changing, Im- uh, impactful experience. To realize that, you know, I have so much, but yet all of these, you know, these kids in Cuba just want what we want. You know, it's it's common humanity and it's growing the relationship and building a future together.
1: Uh, we have a call from Ray in Wallingford uh, who's got a comment a bit of, uh, on the history that uh, Bill the Space Ben Lee was talking about. Hey, Ray, you're on Where We Live. Go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? Doing well. What's on your mind?
5: Yes. Yeah, so I was just calling in reference to the comment about um, the one percenters who left Cuba. Um, and I was sort of taken aback by that comment just because it couldn't be farther from the truth. And now we have a situation. Where I'm, I'm Cuban-American. My uh, my family is Cuban immigrants. And they were school teachers. Um, they worked for the government. Um, and the reason why they left was because my grandmother came to school one day and all the books were being burnt. So it's not a question of that their money was taken away, which everything was. But they left because their basic fundamental human rights were taken away. And since Castro has been in power, none of that has come back. Mm. So I appreciate that what the the diplomacy and what the what we're trying to do here, but I think people are forgetting that this is a still a communist regime where human rights, basic fundamental human rights are taken away. People cannot have a glass of milk past the age of eight. You cannot go to the grocery store and buy food. Yes. Is there good health care? Great. Are they great baseball players? Yes. But So much other culturally, artistically is taken away because it's a communist regime.
1: What do you think? Well, Ray, first of all, I very much appreciate your voice in this conversation. I think it's important. I'm wondering if you can talk, though, about what you think the impact is of, say, uh, President Obama going or the Tampa Bay Rays going and and whether or not this actually changes anything or whether or not it, it sends in your mind the wrong message to a Castro government that hasn't really changed very much over the years in the way it treats people. Um, do you think that we're sending the wrong message through some of the efforts that we've been making?
5: I do, simply because the Castros wouldn't be doing this unless it benefited them. They're doing this to bring money that they could put back in their pocket. The Castros have been in power for a majority of the years. They know what they're doing. They're bringing Obama and this type of organization, all these, you know, the tractors, all this money in the cruise lines so they can get money. They believe the cu- cruise lines could go to Cuba, but Cubans can't go on it.
1: Mm. Uh, I, Ray, Ray th- thank you very much for your phone call, and I really appreciate your voice in this. Uh, Odette, oh, I'd love for you to, to respond to a bit, little bit of what Ray said, because, well, we've said it many times during this conversation. This is very complex, and I think he's pointing to some of those complexities right now.
2: Um, I agree with uh, Ray, what he's saying, uh, but at the same time, we are so focused always to think only about what the government is doing. And I agree what he is saying, of course, is 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 financially helping because I have said it in the beginning. Who are the owners? Maybe in our previous conversation, who are the real owners of... <laughs> All the infrastructure and uh, all those hotels and restaurants and everything in Cuba is the state. And this, of course, is the Castro regime. And uh, since uh, from what I have heard uh, this weekend, uh, what uh, President uh, Raul Castro said in the um, Communist Party, uh, the Congress of the Communist Party, it, it sense to continue that way. He said at the moment, if there were two, co- two, common, two um, parties in Cuba, one will be led by uh, Fidel Castro and the other one by myself.
1: I, 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 and, I, and I will say, as, as we run low on time.
2: But Yes, but yeah. I want to say is that we also have to think about the people and what the people themselves can do with this visit and how, if possible, they can make some changes on their own. I don't know if it is possible, but I want to think that people can do that.
1: I want to thank Odette Casamayor Cisneros from the University of Connecticut. Thank you so much for your expertise. Thanks to Megan Torrey from the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. And thanks to our executive producer, Katie Talarski, for producing today's program. We're going to turn you over to some of our guests who now can uh, tell you how you can support WNPR and everything we bring you here. This is where we live.
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Betsy Kaplan. I'm here in the studio this morning with Lydia Brown asking you to take a few minutes to support this station if you like what you just heard. We just heard a great in-depth conversation on where we live on Cuba and Cuba's relations with the United States after President Obama's recent visit. Um, It's the first day of our second week of fundraising, and I want to just emphasize really quickly that what you just heard was a full hour-length show, in-depth, different viewpoints, no commercials. I can't emphasize enough how important it is that we don't have commercials on this station. Um, when When you have to put together a show or a story, you have to report in short breaks. You can't dive deeply into a story. And not only do commercials break the mood and interrupt the narrative, but stations are beholden to commercial interests. This station belongs to you. It's for you. It's often by you. We take your ideas, you pitch ideas, and we, we put the, turn those into shows. You call in and ask questions of guests, and often we have Hartford residents on or local residents on as guests. So if that's important to you, please give us a call at 1-800-584-2788 or or donate online at wnpr.org.
4: Yeah, that's right, Betsy. And also, I just want to mention that uh, thanks to a very generous longtime donor and supporter of where we live, we have a special challenge going on this hour. And that is, you know, if we can raise $1,000 this hour, we will get an additional $1,000 immediately to support where we live. Uh, But we have to raise that $1,000 in order to unlock this additional money. So I know a lot of people wait for challenges to pledge their support. Well, now's your chance. one 800 584 Eight eight one eight hundred five eight four twenty seven eighty eight 1800 584 2788 or wnpr.org. Betsy? Uh, yeah. So you can get lots of great gifts,
0: and I know that maybe getting a gift isn't the purpose of you giving money, but getting a gift is sort of a nice little byproduct of giving. Um, so what you can get is the Mother's Day flowers, which I know Lydia mentioned in the, in the past break, um, two, two delivery dates if you'd like them on Friday, May 6th. Uh, you can get those for a donation of $10 a month. If you prefer closer to the day, Saturday, May 7th, you can get those for $11 a month. If flowers aren't your thing, maybe you want tickets to see Ira Glass at the Bushnell on November 12th. That's presented by our friends here at Mark Twain, right down the street from us in the museum, for $90. Um, There's lots of things that you can get. I can go through lists and lists and lists. There's hundreds of things in our book. If you would like to look, uh, get online at wnpr.org, and you'll see all sorts of things. I actually got a CD for Motown, believe it or not, not too long ago. (laughs) I'm probably the only person that got it, Uh -uh. but I enjoyed it. So, uh, again, please give us a call. We really, really need your support. I can't emphasize that enough. 1-800-584-2788 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org.
4: 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. A lot of people calling in this morning, uh, getting us closer to that $1,000 goal that we have. The the hour is coming to a close, so one uh, 800